0: If you would open, uh, fellow students, to Revelation 15. Rob said we're really ramping up today. We're going to do a whole chapter, so hang on to your horses. right? Let me just kind of give you a review of the book so far. We've been in Revelation since June. Uh, the Apostle John, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, has been exiled to the island of Patmos, which is off the coast of Turkey in the Aegean Sea, for faithfulness to Jesus Christ. While he was there, the Holy Spirit gave john this revelation of jesus christ which is the last book in our bible revelation really unveils the future Uh, it unveils the end of history the end of this present age but above all else the revelation of jesus christ reveals jesus christ he is the reason for the season and of course this season's all year long so just to give you a brief overview chapter one revelation 1 reviews kind of the circumstances of john's vision and the central character of history which of course is jesus christ revelation 2-3 to talks to us about the seven letters to the seven churches we spent quite a bit of time on that there are seven literal churches several local churches that jesus has a message for and so john writes that and those messages are applicable to all churches throughout history and to us personally even today chapters 4 and 5 really give us the unveiling of the worship of heaven so if if you're ever discouraged in life and you think the world is falling apart which is fairly common when you read the news go to revelation 4 and 5 if you want to see reality revelation 4 and 5 will show you the worship of heaven and the sovereignty and the majesty of almighty god it's very uh, revealing and very encouraging Chapter six begins the beginning of the great tribulation period. Chapter six through 18, there's a 12 chapter section. The tribulation period of history where we've been for the last couple of months is that period of history where God judges sin, sinners and Satan and repossesses his planet before the return of Jesus Christ. So this period of tribulation is a very tumultuous, very uh, uh, harsh period of history. And the judgments of God are seen throughout this. And there are three major sets of judgments. We've been through two of them. Next week, Lord willing, we'll begin the third set of judgments. We've been through the sealed judgments in chapter six. Chapter seven, after the depression uh, that you will feel when you read the sealed judgments, gives us another view of heaven. Okay, God is very, very uh, gracious. When you read these judgments, you'll see a set of judgments, then you get a view of heaven. You see another set of judgments on earth, you get another view of heaven because the Lord wants you to have eternal perspective on the judgments you see on earth. Chapter 8 and 9 gives us the severe trumpet judgments. Chapter 10 gives us another, 10 and 11 actually give us another perspective from heaven's point of view. Chapter 12 to 14 are interludes. They do not advance the chronology of the tribulation, but they backfill details and personalities. Chapter 13 uh, introduced us to the Antichrist and his lieutenant, the false prophet. Uh, chapter 14, which we went through last week, uh, gives us several announcements and gives us two pictures of the last judgment. We talked about the wheat harvest and the grape harvest last week for those of you that were here. And by the time you get through those, you're really depressed because judgment is very, very severe at this point in time. So now God in his mercy is gonna open chapter 15 and give us another view from heaven. Go to chapter 15, please, verse one. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last because in them the wrath of God is finished. So when John says, and I saw, that's the word that says, this is a new vision. This is a new revelation. And he saw a sign. Now, this is the third sign that John has seen. The first sign in Revelation was the woman with child that represented the nation of Israel. The second sign was the great dragon found in chapter 12 as well. It represented Satan. Remember that a sign is not the reality, right? A sign points to the reality. When you're driving down 99 or driving north on 99 and you see a sign that says Fresno 39 miles, right? the sign is not the reality the sign is not the city the sign points to the city points to the rest. so this sign that John saw is not the reality it points to the reality of God's coming judgment and John says this sign was what great and marvelous in the Greek the word is mega mega which means large overwhelming massive John is astonished at two things one he's astonished at the evil on earth and he's stunned at how god's going to deal with that evil so we have massive evil and we have mega judgment and god's going to show us what that is next week when we look at the seven bowl judgments the sign that john sees is not the judgment but john sees seven angels right seven in, in revelation means what It's the number of completion, right? Seven is God's number. It's the number of completion, the number of perfection. And it means that these seven angels are going to deliver God's final judgment on sinful man. God's complete judgment, God's perfect judgment. Now, sometimes we look at these judgments and we are stunned at how comprehensive they are and how severe they are. One of the purposes of judgment is to prepare the people of planet earth for the return of the king. It's to prepare the people of the earth for the return of the king. At Christmas time, we sing what? Joy to the world, the Lord is come, and the next phrase is? Let earth do what? Receive her king. Now question, what does it take for planet earth to receive her king? Does planet earth currently receive her king? By and large, absolutely not. Near the end of this tribulation period, human rebellion against God is so extreme, so extreme, that God is virtually going to have to destroy the planet. And if you want to read ahead with your big uh, boots on, you will find out chapter 16 records the virtual destruction of planet Earth. And that's what it's going to take in order to prepare people to receive their king. And even after experiencing seven years of judgment, we're right near the end of the tribulation period, by the way, chapter 16, the bold judgments, which we're going to talk about next week, they occur probably within a matter of weeks, maybe months at the most. This is not an extended period of judgment, but it's a very intense one. Chapter 15 today really cues up, if you will, gives you the heavenly context For those earthly judgments and even then after this intense judgment most people will not repent one of the things that God's judgments always do is reveal the human heart when you are rebuked by God how you respond is where your heart is correct when God rebukes us and judges our conscience by the holy spirit and the word of god and says son or daughter turn from that sin and turn back to me you now have a choice the earth has a choice too and you're going to find out that much of the earth remains in rebellion we have the choice this side of that judgment to repent or rebel so when god brings conviction it reveals our heart for better or worse amen choose to repent please but this group you're going to see in chapter 16 refuses to repent do you know why most of us refuse to repent we love our sin we love our sin and we have bought the lie that our sin will bring us more joy and satisfaction than obeying Jesus will and that is a lie that is a lie satan believed it and he's been promulgating it ever since so these seven angels have what chapter 15 verse 1 they have seven plagues and the word plague here is a very very intentional word it means blow stripe or wound a plague is something you would receive when you were flogged jesus was flogged almost to the point of death before crucifixion right So the word plague here has the the impression, the idea of a death blow. It has the idea of a wound unto death, which means these seven plagues are virtually going to destroy the planet. Correct? We know that because plague means death blow in this particular case. They are lethal calamities. God is in the process of dismantling this planet, this sinful planet, before he comes back to repossess it. So when you talk to people today and they say, boy, the world's getting worse and worse. Yes, it is. It's getting worse and worse by design. Because this planet is going to be destroyed. If you think that mankind has the ability to destroy the planet, wait till the creator gets done with it. We're headed for a new planet, a new heaven and a new earth, which means the sinful one has to be done away with. Now, seven angels have seven plagues. And these plagues are described as the last, right? The last, because in them the wrath of God is complete. One of the things you'll notice about these judgments, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, is they become increasingly, progressively more intense and more severe. The seals are pretty bad, which we went through. The trumpets are even worse, and by the time you get to the bowl of judgments, you're amazed that anybody has survived at all. So God increasingly ramps up the judgment, and they become progressively more devastating. Here's the principle. God's corrective judgments become progressively more severe because people refuse to repent. Now, the real practical application of that is when you refuse to repent... What does God do in your life? He disciplines us because he's he's your father and you're his child. He wants a relationship with you, and he doesn't want sin in your life that can kill you, so he will separate you from sin. And sometimes the separation comes at the point of pain. God loves us so much that he is very willing to visit our lives with as much discipline as is required for us to repent. Are you with me on that? Now here's the message. Repent early. I know I've said that a lot. Just repent early. Your will and your way is not that good. You are not that smart, and I know I'm not. God's way is better than our way. Amen? Always now it says because in them the wrath of God is finished wrath here means rage it means fierce anger that is unmixed with mercy that should terrify you when God is angry and there's no mercy left in it that's called full strength it says the wrath of God is finished with these judgments by the way the wrath of God against sin is never finished How long does the lake of fire last? Forever and ever. God is always angry over sin, but the word finished here means completed or it means filled up. It means that these seven plagues are the last in a sequence of judgments, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. These seven plagues are the seven bowl judgments and the wrath of God reaches its goal. It accomplishes its purpose. Verse two. John gets another vision at the same time, right, sequentially after he sees the seven angels with the seven plagues. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. So John sees the seven angels with the seven plagues. It's a heavenly vision. And at the same time, he gets this picture of the saints of God you know this is a, um, a figure of speech because it says it's something like, he's trying to describe what he sees in language that we will comprehend. And he says it's something like a sea of glass. Now we know this is not H2O, right? We know this is not water because Revelation 21 tells us the new heaven and new earth has no sea, no ocean, no H2O at that point in time. What he's seeing here is a crystal platform, which is the floor underneath the throne of God. We've seen this before. Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10 saw the crystal platform above the heads of the cherubim below God's throne. In Revelation 4, 6, John saw this same sea of glass, this same crystal platform. Numbers 20, Moses and 70 of the elders saw this as well. So this is clearly where God's throne rests at this point in time. And the crystal, by the way, is not, um, is cut glass. Now crystal, have you ever shown a light into crystal? What does it do? It reflects light, but it also refracts light, which means you get the color spectrum, the rainbow spectrum when you shine light into cut glass. That's the picture here. It reflects light from God's throne, but it also refracts it. So you have this beautiful uh, multicolored, Um, light coming from the throne of God that comes through this crystal platform upon which the throne of God rests. And it says it's mixed with fire. Earlier in Revelation 4, we knew that some of that fire was red, fiery red, blood red. And you say, wow, I've got a crystal platform that's got all the colors of the spectrum, but red is predominant. What does that mean? Fiery red has always been associated with God's judgment in scripture. When you see that, And blood red has always been associated with either the blood of the lamb or the blood of the martyrs, both. And we're going to see both those here. He describes the martyrs, the saints, in verse 2. He says they were standing on this crystal platform in front of the throne of God. And he describes them with this phrase. He says, those who had come off what? What's the word in your scripture? Those who had come off victorious. Is that what your Bible says? Okay, mine says victorious too. The Greek here means to overcome. The Greek here means to prevail, to be victorious, to overcome and prevail, which means these folks were probably martyrs who had been killed for their faith during the tribulation period of time and they had been given the choice, physical death with eternal salvation, We can kill you for your faith. You'll have eternal salvation. Or physical life, you take the mark of the beast and you'll live for a few more months with eternal damnation. Now that's a choice, isn't it? You know something? Ultimately, that's a choice we make too. No one's threatening anybody's life here to my day, to my knowledge, but at the end of the day, you have to choose where your priority is. Is your priority life here on earth now? Or is your priority life forever in heaven? And if I look at your use of time and your use of money, I can tell where your priorities are. By the way, that goes for me too. You can tell that about Brad. The Lord has no problem understanding where our priorities are. He simply says, what do you do with your calendar? What do you do with your checkbook? I know nobody uses the checkbook. Okay, credit card, right? Chip, whatever it happens to be. Where you spend money and where you spend time is a inerrant, revealer of our priorities. These folks had made the decision. My life is in heaven if the Antichrist threatens me with death for recanting Jesus, I'm not going to recant. I'm willing to be a martyr. Now John shows you their constant their outcome. What's the consequence of being murdered on earth? They're in heaven before the throne of God praising God. And their ability to overcome the fear of death was their faith. Look at 1 John 5, verse 4. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to go through it. But write it down. It's a very, very good cross-reference. 1 John 5, verse 4 and 5. 1 John 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes, there's that word again, is victorious over the world. If you want to become victorious over the world, if you're born of God, you're overcoming the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Verse 5. And who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So you look at these martyrs and you say, what gave them the capacity, the power, the strength to be willing to die for their faith? It's the same thing that gives you the willingness to live for Jesus today. Yes? It's Jesus Christ himself. And your faith in him. By the way, Satan will always attack your faith satan will always sow doubt satan will always try and cause division we know his track record right so this season especially we we are expected to be joyful we are expected to be happy we're expected to sing all the happy high notes and be very very um, filled with um, good cheer at christmas For many people, this is a very depressing time of year. Very depressing time of year. Because we all have struggles. We all have battles. We all have life occurring. And Satan will try and tempt you and say, you know, if your God is so good and he is so strong, then how come you're so depressed? How come your life is so bad? Well, for those of us who understand the Christmas story, which if you heard the service, It wasn't exactly a romantic tale, right? It wasn't exactly a a sugar plum sort of a story. It was a manger. It was very, very hard, very poverty stricken where Jesus was born. He came all the way down from heaven for us at that point. So hang on to your faith. Hang on to your faith. These martyrs were victorious. I want you to look at your Bible. Does it say they were victorious over the beast? Or does it say victorious from the beast? The Greek there is from. Victorious from the beast. Now here's the principle. Eternal victory is often achieved through apparent defeat. Eternal victory is often achieved through apparent defeat. By faith we can view earth through the lens of heaven. These martyrs had been delivered from the beast, from the Antichrist. You know how they were delivered? By means of death. By means of martyrdom. They were delivered from the power of the Antichrist because they were killed by the beast and so were delivered from the beast. And you say, uh, is there another way? Is there another way to overcome the beast other than being killed by the beast for my faith? Well, apparent defeat was really eternal victory. How did our Lord Jesus Christ overcome the world? He died for it. The Son of God died for the world and overcame the world by means of his death and resurrection. Should we be any less? Of course not. Of course not. These martyrs died for their faith. The Antichrist thought he had won when he killed them, right? I overcame them. I killed them but the destination of the Antichrist is going to be where the lake of fire where's the destination of the martyrs who die for their faith heaven so who won and who lost where are you measuring from earth or from heaven's point of view the world says he who dies with the most toys wins you know what the reality is he who dies with the most toys still dies right and all those toys are going to the landfill everything in your house that you treasure is going to the landfill we're just talking when and by the way brad's going to the landfill too it's just a question of when now i'm not staying there when jesus comes back raptured we're out of here right here's the promise of jesus christ in the middle of great persecution revelation two ten the church at Sardis. Be faithful unto death here on earth, and I will give you the crown of life, which is forever in heaven. You know, it occurred to me this week that you really can live happily ever after. Maren and I were watching a... uh, a documentary and how they made Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the Disney movie, how they how they actually made that at that point in time. And I thought, somewhere in the human spirit, we have a desire for happily ever after. And that's going to happen. It's just not going to happen here. Right? Happily ever after is coming. It's just not here. Happily ever after is heaven. So what's imperative for us is to understand that we can be apparently defeated here on earth, but that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is in heaven. So think eternally and value eternally. These martyrs who've been killed for their faith are standing on the sea of glass before the throne of God and they've been given harps to praise him and they're singing, verse three, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Now the song of Moses refers back to the children of Israel. Remember when they came out of Egypt and the... Pharaoh's army was chasing them and God opens the Red Sea up and the children of Israel go through the Red Sea on dry ground and Pharaoh's army follows them into the Red Sea and what does God do? He says, let the waves come back and he drowns them all. They get on the other side of the Red Sea on dry ground and they sing the song of Moses which is a song of deliverance and praising God for his great deliverance and miraculous rescue of them. That's Exodus 15. The song of the Lamb This is what we're celebrating today, correct? The Song of the Lamb is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ in in delivering us from sin. That's why we celebrate today. We celebrate today because we have hope. We're not in bondage to sin. We've been delivered from sin through Jesus Christ. So the Song of Moses is earthly deliverance. The Song of the Lamb is eternal deliverance. And these martyrs are singing these songs, and these are some of the greatest lyrics in all of Scripture. Verse 4. Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God Almighty. You know, today we don't say great and marvelous, do we? When's the last time somebody said, boy, that was a great and marvelous dinner? We don't use those words. We use words like awesome, right? That was just awesome. You know, uh, I've already talked to some people who've seen the new Star Wars, right, Rob and DJ? Many people think that Star Wars and, and James Bond are great movie franchises. And one of the reasons why many people believe that is many people believe that they're really awesome movie franchises because they have some of the most unbelievable special effects, right? A Special effect tricks you into believing that what you thought you saw really happened. On one level, you know it didn't, but the better the special effect, the better they are at convincing you that it really did. Here's the good news about God. Our God does not do special effects. He does the real thing, correct? God's works really are awesome. What are some of God's works? God's works would be the creation of the universe, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God did what? Created, Created the heavens and the earth. Is, do we take that for granted? Yes, we take that for granted. How many of you thank God for his creation driving to work today? I know John Stone did. He was pra- praising God for rain. Did it rain last night at your place? Did you say thanks? Okay, that's good. I want to give you a little perspective here. How many of you remember Job? One of my favorite Bible characters. No one names their child Job. Right? I know some of you think you have a child that behaves like Job, but none of nobody names their child. God in his infinite wisdom allowed Job to lose his health, his family and his wealth. Not much left to lose. And Job began to question God's control and his wisdom. And he started accusing God of being unfair. Job wasn't seeing any of God's awesome works. All he was seeing was his own suffering, his own pain, his own problems. He was focused on pain. He wasn't focused on Jesus. And that's what we do. If you put us in enough pain, you know what we think about? Does it help your pain when you become selfish or self-centered with it? no it doesn't but by nature that's what we do when we're in pain we become more self-centered and that usually contributes to making it worse at that point in time so job begins to accuse god of being unfair job actually accuses god of being incompetent can't quite run his universe right For the first 37 chapters of this book, or 36, there's conversations about God's competency to run his world. And in Job 37, God begins to ask Job questions. And the Lord says to Job out of the whirlwind and says, Who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Job, gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Job, put your big boy pants on. Get ready to rumble. Since you're so smart, Job, I've got some questions for you. God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Were you even born when I created the heavens and the earth, Job? Verse 31, can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with the satellites? Job, can you control the movements of the stars and the galaxies? Job, I direct the entire universe, including the galaxies and the stars, I can manage your life, right? Some of us need to remember that. That's one of God's great and marvelous works, right? The macro universe. So my question was, well, does God manage well his universe on a micro scale, on a human scale? Psalm 139 says, verse 13, you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. See, God not only makes macro galaxies, he makes micro babies. Miraculous new life made in his image, right? Interesting that I've met a number of atheists. I've never met one yet that looked at their grandchild right after birth and said, it's just random chance. No atheist has ever said that, or I've heard of saying that when they look at their grown grandchild. So, the proper response to God's works is what David says. He said, I will give thanks to you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. By the way, the greatest of God's works in Scripture is not creation, it's redemption. It's redemption. God's power is displayed in creation, but God's love is displayed in redemption at the cross. We know that because John 3.16 tells us what? For God so loved that he gave. Good model for us. We celebrate Christmas today because today is the day that God gave. The part that staggers me is today God gave his son Christmas Day, coming up this week Friday, and he knew that we were going to kill him. In advance. And he gave anyway. 33 years later, the resurrection was the greatest of God's work that validated the deity of Jesus and destroyed the power of death who's doing these works great and marvelous are they works what's the next phrase in your Bible say what's it say Lord Lord God Almighty the supreme master the ruler of the universe the only creator of everything You know, you don't have to go to a movie theater to see God's great and mighty works. You have to ask him to open your eyes to see. Open your spiritual eyes to see his mighty works and then give him thanks for them. What kind of a God does these awesome works? What's the next phrase say? Great and mighty are thy works, O Lord God, the Almighty. What kind of a God does these works? Righteous, just, and true, thou King of the nations. See, works are what God does, Ways are who God is, and He's just and true. He's a truthful and honest God. He always keeps His promises. Regardless of the circumstances, we can always trust Him. And it says, King of the saints, or King of the nations, or King of the ages. All three are true, right? Is God King over His own people, the saints? Yes. Is God King over the nations, which means those who are not His children? Is He Lord over them? Yes. The ages has to do with time and space. He's ruler over the space and time universe as well. Verse 4 asks a very interesting question that planet Earth does not answer well. After we see God's great and mighty works, his holy and just and righteous character, the question is asked, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? You know, it begs kind of a negative response, right? The response would be, well, no one would not fear. Everyone would fear and glorify Jesus' name. Is that what happens? Psalm 14 gives us a definition of people who refuse to do that. What do we call people who say in their heart there is no God? A fool. Uh, yeah. The fool hath said in his heart there is no God. Those who understand God's great and mighty works will fear and glorify his name. Now the word fear here is phobio. That's where we get phobic, right? Phobio means to fear. It means to stand in awe and reverence in the light of your creator. And glorify is the word doxa, doxazo actually. We use the word glory a lot. We, We sing about glory and glorifying a lot. The word literally means heavy. It means that which has weight that which has substance, that which has value and worth. Worship actually is worth-ship. We are declaring the worth, the weight, the value, the, 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 the enormous um, uh, value of God Almighty. Now, what's the opposite of heavy? Light, right? Have you ever, been, have you ever described somebody as being lightweight? Ah, they're lightweight. That's not a very complimentary. It means you don't have to take them very seriously. They're lightweight. That argument that they just gave you, it's lightweight. You know, it doesn't really cut the mustard. You can disregard it. It's not a factor in planning. To glorify God means you take him seriously. God is heavy. Yes? He's heavy because his words created the heavens and the earth. Let me give you the principle and I'll try and illustrate it. Here's the principle. God is the center of everything. You glorify God when you revolve around him, but you glorify yourself when you expect God to revolve around you. You cannot do both. You will choose to revolve around God or you will expect God to revolve around you. Here's the word picture. I want you to think of our solar system. What's the center of the solar system? The sun contains almost 99% of the total mass of the solar system is in the sun. The sun is 864,400 miles in diameter. That's across. It's 109 times the diameter of the earth. Rather significant difference, right? The sun weighs 333,000 times as much as the earth. You could fit 1,300,000 earths inside the sun. The earth actually is the size of an average sunspot. Now in the vernacular, that means the earth is a pimple on the face of the sun. Question, who revolves around who? Who's the center of gravity in the solar system? Who has more mass, more weight, more radiance, more heat? Who is dependent on who? Here's the point. God is the center of gravity for the entire universe. Yes? Yes. The universe, including us, were designed to revolve around him. When we fail to treat God with glory, when we treat God casually, you know what we're telling him? We're telling him we are the center of gravity. The whole universe should rotate around us. Now, you know who does that regularly, habitually? Children, right? Your little children, does the universe rotate around them? Say yes. Here's the problem. Some of you are facilitating that especially with your grandchildren, (laughs) right? The sun sets on my grandchild. Um, I know you love them, and you should. You should be crazy about them. You should be insanely crazy about your grandchildren, really. Don't facilitate their self-centeredness. Else they'll grow up, and you will not understand why they think they should be called princess. And their husband-to-be will curse your name because you created the I'm joking, but I'm not joking. You understand. We do this to God all the time. We say, God, I want you to do blah, blah, blah. That's like the earth telling the whole universe, rotate around me. Right? Even though put 1.3 million of us into the sun, we want to be the center. We are calling God a lightweight when we do that. God is the center because he's unique. What's the next phrase say? You alone are holy. Underline the word alone. It says you alone are holy. God is unique. There is no one like him. He's one of a kind. The the, the Greek there for holy is hosios. It has to do with transcendence. God is above his creation. God alone is holy. God is different than his creation. God is not a part of his creation. God is not dependent on his creation. God is independent and he exists apart from him. And so what, the, what John is telling us here is that holy God has the perfect right to judge sin. I want you to remember that because next week you will literally be catching your breath at the severity of the judgments are coming up. And you must understand that holy God has a perfect right and his holiness obliges him to judge sin. And the judgments are incredibly severe because the holiness of God is perfectly pure. Here's the response to God's holiness. For all the nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now to worship we talked about last week, it literally means to do homage. It means to prostrate yourself before the throne of a sovereign, literally to kiss their ring. You're declaring that you are subservient to the one you are worshiping. God is going to do many, many righteous acts. When you read that phrase, all the nations will come and worship before you. Is that currently happening? No. So all the nations are not worshiping now. What has to happen for all the nations to come and worship before Jesus Christ? The rest of the tribulation the seven bowl judgments chapter 16 has to occur before all the nations are going to come to worship and you go whoa we have to almost destroy the planet Mm-hmm. the righteous acts of God against sin are revealed in the rest of the tribulation they're revealed now the word revealed here is a legal term it means to make known in a court of law it means to prove it means to document it means to make visible you know today God judges sin but he exhibits extreme mercy towards sinners doesn't he is God patient with sinners today yes I look in the mirror and I say yes he's merciful with sinners today but sinners many assume that God will never judge their sin because he hasn't judged it yet that would be one of the all-time worst conclusions you could make One reason God wrote Revelation is so you will understand that he will judge sin, period. And there is a day when his mercy ends. There will come a day when that's over. At that point in time, post-judgment, every nation during the millennium will come and worship. But it's going to take judgment for that to happen. They will bow willingly at that point because all the tares, like we talked about last week, are on the bonfire. Verse 5. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. So John has another vision here, and he says, I saw this. And he said, I saw the temple. Now the Greek there is the word naos, N-A-O-S. It doesn't mean the whole temple. It means the holy of holies. It means the inner sanctuary of the temple the place that contained the Ark of the Covenant the Ark of the Covenant what was in the Ark of the Covenant by the way Ten the Ten Commandments the table of the tabernacle there was Ted there was a manna and of course the Aaron's rod that budded the almond but the most important thing was the tablets of the law the Holy of Holies was the place where God met man the most important thing to remember about the Holy of Holies is No one could enter there except the high priest. Correct? Once a year carrying sacrificial blood. The temple was closed to everyone except the priests, and the Holy of Holies was always closed except for once a year. And right now you read that the temple is what? Opened. And you say, wow, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, they tore the veil... Making the way to God open to man. That's not what he's talking about here. In chapter 4, we saw heaven was open for the saints to get in, access to God. Now he's talking about the veil is open, the temple is open for judgment to come out. God is opening the temple not for mankind to get in. That's done. Now it's judgment holy judgment's going to pour out on the unfaithful verse 6 and the seven angels who had the seven plagues so the temples opened up the seven angels who have the seven plagues come out of the temple they're clothed in linen clean and bright girded around their breasts with golden girdles they're literally dressed in priests garments linen was something priests wore by the way this same clothing is what the saints wear in heaven you're going to be wearing this stuff believe it or not you'll be wearing white linen And you won't even need Tide to keep it clean. I mean, it'll be great. Even the kiddos will be able to stay clean in heaven. That's going to be amazing with their lollipops and all. I'm not sure how that's going to work. Jesus himself is seen wearing this same clothing. So it's obviously these are pure and holy angels, and they come out from the presence of God in order to carry out God's judgment. Verse 7. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. This principle is real hard for me. And I really struggled with it, but it's absolute truth. God hates sin. So when sinners refuse God's gift of eternal life, nothing is left except judgment our world does not want to face this our world wants to believe that god can actually tolerate evil furthermore if he's a good god he would tolerate evil that's precisely the opposite because he's a good god he will not tolerate evil because evil is the opposite of good these four living creatures here are the cherubim who guard the holiness of god we saw them in ezekiel 1 We saw them earlier in Revelation as well. Each of the seven angels is given a bowl, and this bowl is a saucer. It's a very flat saucer. They used to use incense in, and it contains a manifestation of the wrath of God. Each of these bowls are filled to the brim with what? What does it say? The wrath of God. I want you to understand that the Greek for wrath is thumos. Thumos means boiling fury. Boiling fury. Holy God is enraged over sin because sin is ruining his creation and killing his children. And he's going to judge it. He's going to destroy it. And it says this holy God that's enraged over sin is going to live how long? Forever and ever. Which means he is eternal. Eternal. The Greek here is literally unto the ages of the ages. God is not only going to live forever, God's going to judge sin forever. Is God ever going to tolerate sin? Never. God's going to judge sin forever and ever because the lake of fire lives forever. God will never get over his righteous hatred of sin and evil. Here's what bothers me. Brad and you can very easily learn to tolerate sin. To learn to live with it. To learn to negotiate with it. I have to tell you, I don't hate sin like God hates sin. So the Lord is teaching me to hate sin and my primary call is not to hate the sin in your life it's to get the log out of my eye it's to hate the sin in my life and the older I get in the faith the more weary I become of battling sin it's a struggle that all of us who want to grow in Christ are going to face and I think one of the great joys of heaven is that we will have rest and the rest It's not physical rest. The rest is your battle with sin will be done. And that is an exhausting struggle, and it is so tempting just to compromise with it. Say, Lord, I just can't get the victory over this sin. It ain't victory, folks. It's obedience. I'm unwilling to battle this because I love my sin or I love my comfort. And I don't want God poking at me, bringing conviction to purify me. I'm gonna plead with you to soften your heart and be willing to do the battle with sin in your life because you have the Holy Spirit who will carry you through that. He will give you what you need if you respond to him. And if you refuse to deal with it today, you will deal with it tomorrow. Because there's no sin in heaven, right? Say yes. Yes. Which means none of us are going to get there under our own capacity and like we are now. We're going to have to be changed. And that's the good news. Jesus Christ does that. Changes us from the inside out. And that's why today is such a great day of celebration, his advent. Verse 8. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. It's interesting, it says smoke from the glory of God. This is not dense black smoke from a fire. This smoke is a luminous cloud that is so bright that you can't see through it. It obscures everything around it. This cloud is the Shekinah glory of God. The Hebrew word for Shekinah it's Shekhan, S-H-A-C-H-A-N, Shakan, which means to dwell or to tabernacle. The Shekinah glory is the visible manifestation of the presence of God. Anytime you see in the Bible, God present, local, on earth, visible form, it's always in the Shekinah glory. Whenever you see in the Bible, the glory of the Lord or the glory of Jehovah, it's referring to the Shekinah glory. Let me give you some examples because I want you to understand this. God's Shekinah glory on earth always looks like light, a fire, or a cloud. We see the Shekinah glory with Moses at the burning bush, yes? It appeared at the Exodus for the children of Israel, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. That's the presence of God in the Shekinah glory. When they dedicated the tabernacle, it says God's Shekinah glory filled the tabernacle so that Moses couldn't even enter because the presence of God filled the tabernacle. When Solomon's temple was dedicated in 1 Kings 8, God's glory came down in the Shekinah glory cloud and filled the tabernacle, filled the temple, and the priests could minister. What did Isaiah see in chapter 6? He saw the glory of God, the Shekinah glory in heaven when he had his vision of heaven. You know one I never saw before? Luke 2. What did the shepherds see? It says, The glory of the Lord appeared to them. What is that? The Shekinah glory. This is God coming down in visible form, obscured by the cloud. By the way, it's a good thing he's obscured by the cloud because no man can see the face of God and live. Right? Because we're sinners. We see the Shekinah glory of God revealed in the transfiguration of Jesus. What was it that appeared on the heads of the apostles during the Pentecost? Tongues of fire, Shekinah glory. What did Saul see on the road to Damascus? He saw a bright light, Shekinah glory of God. What's intriguing to me is Revelation 21 says, there will be no light source in heaven. You won't need the sun because the glory of God will light the heavens For all eternity that's the shekinah glory of god that's the presence of god here's the point all through scripture god dwells with his people he comes in different forms sometimes he comes in the shekinah glory cloud today christmas we celebrate his coming as a baby very humble very obscure under the radar And yet his presence is felt in the world through who? You. You bear him. You carry him. He lives in you. You are, for most of the world, the only Jesus that they will see. Because Santa Claus ain't getting it done. Right? Santa Claus doesn't raise people from the dead. Santa Claus, I'm not critiquing Santa Claus, but it's the difference between a cultural tradition and the reality that undergirds it. The season is all about the sun. He is the center of gravity. And I wanted to review this chapter with you because next week when we look, Lord willing, at chapter 16 and you see these tremendous judgments, and we're going to be going through a lot of geological issues next week because they really impact planet Earth you must understand that the holiness of god demands that he judge sin because it's killing his creation and he's showing mercy today he has for thousands of years but there's going to come a point when he says i'm done okay let's review god's judgments become more painful when people refuse to repent number two Eternal victory is often achieved through apparent defeat. By faith, we can view earth through the lens of heaven. Number three, God is the center of everything. You glorify God when you choose to revolve around him, but you glorify yourself when you expect God to revolve around you. Lastly, God hates sin, so when sinners refuse God's gift of eternal life, nothing is left except judgment. We have been graced by the grace of God and we have the opportunity to repent today. We don't have to wait until final judgment, but there are many today in your world that need to know the Savior. Tell them about him. okay? I love you guys. Next week, Lord willing, next chapter. Now that you know, do.